Hello, and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. All right, my name is Justin. I'll be reading our scripture today. Um, This comes from Matthew 6, 5 through 13. So Jesus says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them. For your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins, as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. Thanks, buddy. I, um... It's, it's, this is not a Palm Sunday passage, but it's not lost on me. We've been in the uh, Sermon on the Mount for the last few weeks during Lent, and uh, it feels like the right time to be in this particular passage this morning. Uh, but I do want to take a few minutes just before we jump in, um, because it's been a heavy week to be a Tennessean, hasn't it? Um, and I know that uh, thoughts and prayers kind of took a beating this week, but I was thinking about uh, and I agree, I 100% agree that we need something you know, far more actionable um, or that praying and thinking should lead to action. But I just thought that in this room, what we do is we think and we pray. And so I just wanted to take some time to do that uh, all together. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he says that there are times to do specific things. And I just feel like in this moment, in this time, um, it, it is one that, that is meant for praying. Um, there's a guy named Pete Gregg who... Uh, if you use the Lectio 365 app, a lot of us in the room do. If you don't, it's a, it's a wonderful daily uh, app that uh, is just Lectio 365. You can find it um, in the app store on whatever uh, phone you use. Uh, but Pete Gregg is the guy that's kind of like the master behind the app. That's his baby. But he wrote a book uh, called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. Great title. Um, and he says this in the book. He says, life, hurts, or life sometimes hurts like hell. But I've discovered that deleting God from the equation doesn't actually help. It merely removes all meaning and morality from the mess and all real hope from the future. And so with that in mind, I just uh, I want to create some space and time to think and pause and pray and to allow God uh, into the equation. Uh, in this room, we have teachers and we have students and we have administrators and we have law enforcement and military and healthcare workers and people who speak for and work for our cities and communities. We have children, we have parents, um, 
so we have many people on this room who uh, this week saw on, a, on the TV or a news, like an article or social media or wherever, someone uh, in their own state uh, that they could relate to whose life or work looks a whole, lot, a whole lot like what they do. And I feel like when um, stuff like this happens and it gets a little closer to our community, it feels like an extra level of heavy. And so... Um, I don't know, I was thinking, there's this moment in the Gospels um, when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? And, and, and Jesus uh, gets word that Lazarus has died, and he doesn't make it. He doesn't make it home in time to heal him. It doesn't make it home in time um, to say goodbye. None of those things. By the time Jesus gets to his house, um, he's gone. Um, and when he arrives, uh, some stuff happens, and then um, this, there's this moment that kind of culminates with Jesus, and he walks to the tomb of Lazarus. And he's about to call Lazarus back to life. Like, he's about to, to, to make every sad thing become untrue. Um, but there's this moment right before that when Jesus says this thing. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Does anybody know it? Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. He walks up to the tomb. Again, knowing he is about to make everything sad become untrue. And he weeps. And the older I get and the more uh, experience I have, the more I feel like I can hold this scene in a different way. Jesus weeping at the tomb of his friend. Uh, I have a friend that believes that the reason that Jesus grieves here at this tomb is because Jesus, who is God, who holds the past and who holds the future, also holds and respects reality. And out of respect for, for, for reality, out of respect for how the world is in this moment, with the loss of his friend, he sits in front of a tomb and he weeps. And it is not lost on me that it is the grieving God that heals Lazarus and calls him out. And so what I want to say is, as your pastor, don't miss moments to grieve. Like, act. Please act. But don't miss moments to grieve. Grief is wider than an aisle. It's bigger uh, than politics. It is an important step for us to weep uh, for our neighbors. It is a godly and a historical posture. There's a whole book in the Bible about it. Anyone ever tried to read Lamentations? It's tough. So here's what I want to do. I want to take a silent moment. And I just want to sit silently and then we'll pray together. But I just want to hold space to honor the reality of what happened in our state this week. Uh, to honor the lives of those who died. To honor uh, the lives of those who loved them. Uh, to honor the Metro PD who were like real life superheroes. Uh, uh, to hold space for the medical community who like others involved saw things um, that are excruciating to see, uh, to hold space for community uh, builders and lawmakers and school administrators and whoever else I'm not thinking of who, who make decisions, and, and then also to hold space for the city of Nashville who, uh, for whom I think the sound of an ambulance will never be the same. And so I'm going to, um, we'll sit silently, and then I'm just going to lead us in a prayer that I stole most of from someone else. So we'll be silent for just a moment. Alongside you, we honor reality. We bring to you our lament, our grieving, our fears, our sorrow. We are a people undone. And in our grief, we know that you weep with us. That alongside us, you grieve every lost life and 
Every orphan child or mourning family alongside us, you grieve every trauma and every tragedy beyond and before what we can imagine. We hold space for the lives that were lost and the lives that have been forever changed. And as we hold this grief, uh, will you, across our community and our state and our country, would you give us and our leaders imagination and creativity to combine resources and power in order to reimagine this world into a place uh, of safety and a place of harmony? We thank you uh, for the helpers in Nashville, for their courage and their action. We ask you to be near to them, to their hearts and their minds. Would you protect them from the kind of evil that torments the mind? And we pray for peace. We pray for peace in our country, in our state, in our cities, in our community. We pray for the students and the parents and teachers and administrators and law enforcement who um, are here with us in this room who have an extra measure of heaviness and fear on them. I pray that you would not only be near to them, but you would feel near to them. And will you keep them safe? God, will you please fill our streets and our schools and our gathering places with peace. May what we practice in this room on Sunday fill our community, but also will you fill the school with peace? And in these next few moments, uh, would you teach us how to pray in a way that changes things, a way that changes us? Would you fill us with the wisdom and creativity and imagination of your spirit as we long to join you in your work of renewing all things? In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so as I said at the beginning, I actually was telling uh, my friend James Halter this on Friday night, that it's not lost on me today that uh, as we close up our weeks on the Sermon on the Mount after a heavy week, uh, that our Palm Sunday scripture today is about prayer. Um, and specifically, uh, Jesus' answer for how to pray, which is called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, as I said, it's been on the calendar for weeks, and it feels like it's just the right time. Uh, David Binner is a, a Canadian psychologist and writer that I really appreciate. And he says that prayer is our soul's native language. That it is the language we know most deeply. And I think that's true. I think part of being human means uh, that this is our native language. Um, I want to read you kind of a long quote from uh, Pete Gregg's book that I talked about earlier. But I just thought it was really beautiful. And he says this. He says, on Mount Athos, 2,000 meters above the Aegean Sea, big bearded Orthodox monks are praying as they have done for 1,800 years. About 11 miles north of Lagos, more than a million Nigerian Christians are gathering for a monthly prayer meeting at the vast campus of the redeemed Christian Church of God. On the banks of the river Ganges, Hindu pilgrims plunge into the sacred water seeking cleaning, cleansing and hope. Somewhere in Manhattan, a group of addicts on a 12-step program is seeking, quote, through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. High in the Himalayas, bells are chiming and strings of colored prayer flags are dancing across sapphire skies. Deep in the forests of giant redwood and Douglas fir on California's lost coast, Cistercian nuns are keeping vigil beside the Matol River where salmon and steelhead swim. One in every four people prays the Lord's Prayer each year on Easter Day alone. One person in every six bows toward Mecca up to five times a day. Hasidic Jews stand at Jerusalem's wailing wall, dressed in black and rocking to and fro like aging goths at a silent disco. <laughs> in front of them, between the giant stones of Herod's temple, thousands of handwritten prayers are wedged like badly rolled cigarettes between the bricks. 
it is worth pausing to acknowledge the unending chorus of human longing. A canticle of sighs and cries and chiming bells, mutterings in maternity wards, celestial oratorios and scribbled graffiti. In the words of Rabbi Abraham Heschel, prayer is our humble answer to the inconceivable surprise of living. Prayer, it's, it's our, our native language as humans. It is our humble answer to the surprises of being human uh, that are beyond our comprehension. Uh, the English word for prayer comes from the Latin word for precarious, uh, which I think is interesting. Uh, why do we pray? Because life is precarious, because it is full of surprises. And we also pray because Jesus did. In the Bible, we see Jesus living a life uh, full of prayer. Before his public ministry begins, he fasts for 40 days. He goes away and prays and fasts for 40 days. Um, the night before he, he chose his disciples, he stayed up all night uh, praying. We regularly see him withdraw to a mountain or uh, a body of water or a garden to pray alone. Uh, he prays for healing multiple times for people. When the pressure seemed to crush him, he prayed. When death comes for him, he prayed. Even on the cross, he cries out for prayer. Uh, Jesus seems to respond to being a human person by praying and praying and praying and praying. At, at one point, though, his disciples come to him and they say, can you teach us how? Like, can you teach us to pray? Can you teach us how to do uh, what it is that you do? And we find the response to that question today in Matthew 6. Um, it's our text for today. It's a simple prayer that Jesus gave his followers, and it's like his simple and concise way. When they say how to pray, he says, do it like this. Simple and concise. And my hope is uh, to spend the next few minutes just kind of going line by line and, and, and talking about it. I giggled writing this because leave it to me to take this simple thing and try to make it way more complicated than it is. Um, but I'd like to take some time to see what's there and also what other people have said about it. There are going to be a lot of quotes this morning. But I think it matters. I think it matters that we take some time here because I believe that this prayer in particular is, is crucial uh, to the way of following Jesus. Uh, Justin Welby, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury, so he's the head of the Anglican Church, he says, prayer is so special because, this, or this prayer is so special because it is simple enough to be memorized by small children and yet profound enough to sustain an entire lifetime of prayer. Meaning, it's, it's part of the way of Jesus, not only in our memorization. Some of you may have memorized it as a kid um, or an adult or at some point in your life. But it's not only um, important to the way of Jesus as far as our memorization, but also in our engagement, our continued engagement all throughout our lives. So let's jump in. Um, Missy's going to uh, throw, throw the lines up, and so the lines will be above me, and we're just going to go line by line and talk just a little bit about each one. Jesus starts his prayer really simply, uh, the way many of us have been taught to pray. He says, our Father in heaven, or if you memorize the King James Version, our Father who art in heaven. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, which is like a big, huge church document from the 1500s that attempts to answer every question of the church, which is impressive, um, also, spoiler, doesn't. Um, <laughs> the Heidelberg Catechism says that Jesus begins his prayer and encourages us to begin our prayers this way because it awakens us to the childlike reverence and trust of God uh, that should act as the base of all prayer. Essentially, what it's saying is who we pray to determines what we pray about. And so Jesus specifically says, let's address the two before anything else. 
Uh, we begin our prayer with a reminder that we seek God as a child seeks their father. Uh, but not just any child seeking a father, because for some of you in the room, that might not be a gift, right? Uh, it's not good news for everyone in this room to seek like a father. What Jesus says instead is we seek our father, not my father, but his father, our father, reminding us that we come to God alongside Jesus, not as we would our earthly fathers, but as he does his father. We get to come as he does to God. We pray to his father, who is also ours, our father in heaven. Uh, it's also interesting to me, um, the heaven part, because I feel like growing up, I assumed that we were praying to a God who was very far away. Uh, but a biblical understanding of heaven isn't that. A biblical understanding of heaven is the, the presence of God in an earthly realm uh, everywhere. Not far away, but, but the God of the unseen realm around us all of the time. When Dallas Willard, um, he has like a, a translation with his words on this prayer, and he says that we could begin the first line like this. Father all around us and Father close at hand. Uh, the next line of the prayer says, may your name be kept holy. Uh, maybe when uh, you memorized it, you memorized Hallowed here. I always wondered what that meant. Um, it felt like Halloween, and I thought that maybe the church was in trouble. <laughs> but here's what, here's what this means. Uh, in a biblical view, uh, names are far more uh, than just like a personal labor, label. Uh, names in a biblical worldview are realities, which means that knowing the name of God means also knowing who God is, knowing his attributes, knowing his character. So therefore, something this short and simple like this line is actually saying something big. May your name be kept holy is saying, uh, may I know and may the world know your name. And may we know who you are. May we know your nature and may we know your character. It is a line of great intimacy and a line of great reverence. Our Father, may your name be kept holy. May we know who you are. Uh, that line leads us to another big one. The next line uh, that comes is, may your kingdom come soon. Uh, this is no small prayer. We, are, uh, we talk about the kingdom incessantly here at the vineyard. Um, the, and we talk about how the kingdom of God is here, but it's also coming. And, and that, that we feel like our job as Jesus followers is to fill the earth with more of the good stuff of heaven. And we talk about it a lot like two concentric cir or two circles overlapping each other. There's the kingdom of earth. And that uh, part of the way of Jesus is to take the kingdom of heaven and eventually overlap the kingdom of earth uh, with, with, the, with his kingdom. Uh, a writer named Daryl Johnson, he puts this part of the prayer like this. He says, to pray the Lord's Prayer is to participate in heaven's invasion of the earth. Uh, this line is kind of a both and. It's, it's an affirmation of God's kingdom, and it is a belief in its power for the present moment. This line is, is one that longs for what's coming and longs for the future and believes that the good stuff of heaven can and will break in here at any moment. It's a huge line, uh, which brings us to the next one. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is uh, 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 the request part of the prayer. Uh, more of heaven in this world, but in a couple of ways. Uh, one of the requests I think that's here is to pray for God's will to be done on the earth all around us. That is a line of great power. May your will be done on earth all around us. 
but it is also a line of, of great intimacy because if you are in the world, then that line is a prayer for God's will to also be done in and around you and in and through you. Because to ask, uh, and, and that's, a, that's, that's an incredibly vulnerable prayer uh, because uh, it, it's not just praying for God's will in the world, it's praying for God's will in us. And, and, and to ask for God's will to be done in us means to make room for God to be not just who we hope he will be, but who he is. Making room for God to be himself. That's what this line is getting at. Frederick Buechner says uh, that in this part of the Lord's Prayer, we are asking God to be God. We are asking God to do not what we want, but what he wants. And that is powerful. Anyone here who knows how it feels for God to be God in a moment where what you wanted and what he wanted did not seem to be the same knows how vulnerable of a prayer this is, how risky of a prayer this is. To me, uh, this line is the very Palm Sunday uh, line of this poem. Jesus uh, comes into Palm Sunday riding on a donkey. He's the king that no one expected. He looks nothing like the people expected him to be. And I feel like prayer uh, feels that way sometimes. Us allowing God to be who he will be is not always who we want him to be. That was a lot of bees. Did that make sense? <laughs> it's a wide and uh, wild request. Uh, but the next one uh, to happen kind of lands a little more human and a little more on the earth. The next line is, give us today the food we need. Or maybe you memorize, give us today our daily bread. A very human need. And I have two different thoughts on this. I think I believe two things about this line. Um, and I can't decide which one I believe more, but I think maybe they're saying very similar things. Uh, the first is, I think this line is an invitation out of self-sufficiency and into dependency. And I think I'm reluctant to believe this because I hate dependency more than anything else in the world. Uh, David Benner, who I quoted earlier, he says this. He says, what God wants is that we, not I, Come for our, not my, daily, not weekly, bread from him, not the labor of my hands. Most of us so excel at ensuring our ongoing supply of life's provisions that we find the idea of having to come back for daily bread offensive. But God invites us to abandon our neurotic displays of self-sufficiency. I feel very seen and heard. He invites us to surrender our stolen independence in exchange for willingly accepted dependence. It's a very Exodus uh, prayer. If you know the story of the Israelites, uh, they're in the desert and God provides them every single day with manna, their actual literal daily bread, just enough food for one day. And then his request from them is that they depend on him for that, that they have faith for him for that. And so that's one way I think of reading this line. And then Chad, our former associate pastor who blows every paradigm I have all the time, he says that what he thinks about this line is that uh, what he's read is that the translation here is off because there was some confusion in the theology that Jesus was trying to teach. That really daily bread, what we translate in English as daily bread, would be rather, or better translated as tomorrow's bread which feels like a very kingdom prayer where Jesus is saying, um, pray for the fullness of God's kingdom that you know will come tomorrow. Pray for that to come today. And I like that one too. <laughs> so however you cut it, I think this, is both, uh, this line is both uh, a prayer of dependency, but also one of expectation, all at the same time. Okay, next one. Uh, and forgive us our sins, as we have forgiven those who sin against us. 
Uh, like the line above it, this is also a prayer that points back uh, to the Old Testament. The language here is jubilee language. It's God's people um, call, uh, being called to a lifestyle of forgiveness, a whole life of forgiveness. It's also uh, not just Old Testament language. It's very Jesus language because Jesus' entire ministry was built on forgiveness. Uh, N.T. Wright says forgiveness is actually the only reason to sign up to be a kingdom person or a Jesus person. That it's the radical forgiveness that was active and happening and abundant and free through Jesus. But that when we sign up to be this kind of person, it also means that that active and living forgiveness must also live in us. To take part in the forgiveness but not offer it is an absurdity. It makes me think of this story I heard. Has anyone read or seen the movie The Hiding Place about Corey Ten Boom? Anybody? Okay. Oh, yay. Okay. Um, Corrie Ten Boom um, and her family, they were watchmakers in the Netherlands. And uh, during World War II, their family, when um, the, the German rule started to move into their territory, they uh, got in very big trouble for hiding Jews in their homes. And so Corrie Ten Boom and her whole family all end up in concentration camps. And... Um, and when they do end up, it's sort of toward the end of the war, they end up being released from these camps when the war ends. Um, and so Corrie Ten Boom goes on to be a writer and a speaker. And, um, and so she was at an event in Germany, in, and, and, and she was speaking at a church, and she was talking specifically about forgiveness in this church. And she said after the sermon um, was over, a man came up to her, and it turned out it was one of her former SS guards. And he walks up to her, and he says, I was so thankful for your message on forgiveness. And just think, even me, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus. And then he stuck out his hand to shake her hand. And she has this moment uh, where she says, um, I who preach so often the need to forgive kept my hand close by my side. And she said she kept trying. She wanted to raise it to shake his hand. And she would try and she would pray like, let me forgive him, let me forgive him, and, and let me raise my hand. And she just couldn't do it. And so finally, uh, she, she just cried out, Lord Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And as she said that, she raised her hand, and she says this, As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discover that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. This prayer, forgive me and fill me with forgiveness to spread everywhere, is our request to Jesus. You've given me forgiveness, now give me forgiveness to give away. Expectant and dependent. Okay, last line. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. Uh, this line, it considers a, a similar dynamic that we've seen throughout the Lord's Prayer, that there's kind of an inward part of it and an outward part of it. Uh, Augustine, who's a church father, he says that uh, the first part of this line, lead us not into temptation, is a prayer for deliverance, a very personal, um, vulnerable prayer for deliverance from the destruction that lives inside each and every single one of us. And then he thinks that the second part of it um, is a petition. He calls it a petition for protection um, from the evil and destruction that exists all around us. And so in this line, Jesus is saying, pray to be delivered 
and for deliver for protection all around you and for the people that you love and the communities that you love. Uh, uh, I think this is a, a request for grace beyond anything else. It's deliverance and petition. Deliver me and protect what is around me. And then normally, uh, not here, but normally prayers end with amen. In Luke's version, he does end it with the word amen. Matthew doesn't. Um, but it's very customary to us. We've been trained if you, in Christian culture to end prayers and amen. And I just read something this week. Uh, I was reading the Heidelberg Catechism about the prayer. And they took time to say, uh, to define the word amen. And according to them, uh, amen means it is true and it is certain. And I love that. Amen. It's like this, this ceiling on what we do. And it's an acknowledgement that the prayers, will, we believe that the prayers will be heard by the one to whom we ask. And so amen acts like this seal, uh, like, like, like a signed mark document that we present to the one that we believe will hear us. This is, this is true and it is certain. Amen.